When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Begin transmission in 3, 2, 1. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. It's nearly been five decades since Neil Armstrong took one small step for mankind. Ten, nine... Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tango and Apollo 11 entered and gave us a magnificent ride. All right, your 11, we'll pass that on, and it certainly looks like you're well on your way now. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with America in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. But could we be set to return again in the dawn of a new space race? As things heat up, I'm bringing together the cosmically curious to unpick the drivers behind the marathon back to the moon. This is Naked Astronomy and I'm Greer Jackson. It was the first Friday in October 1957 that the great space race began. Instead of listening to BBC Home Services Who Knows, a radio show where you had to write your science questions on postcards and send them to Broadcasting House, everyone watched as the world's first satellite was propelled into space by the Russians. The satellite's weight has led some American experts to speculate that the rocket which launched it might also be capable of carrying a nuclear weapon thousands of miles. The fact that Sputnik is expected to fly over the US seven times a day has also caused unease. There have already been calls for an immediate review of US defences, given the implications of the technological leap ahead by a political enemy. But Dr. Blagonravov said no one had anything to fear from the Soviet satellite programme. It will keep everyone too busy watching the instruments to think about anything else, he said. 
It's funny now to look back and think that there was such an ease about all of this. After all, Sputnik was essentially a metal ball that sent pulses of radio waves. But there was a lot more behind this metal ball Sputnik than you might have expected. October 1957, with the launch of Sputnik, was just a massive shock to the United States. It wasn't really just the fact that the Soviet Union had managed to put a large satellite, this is 83-kilogram satellite, into orbit 560 miles above the Earth. Also, the size of the rocket they used to launch that satellite. And it wasn't really about a space race. It was about the fact that if the Soviet Union could do this, they could undoubtedly launch nuclear warheads to the continental United States. So that was a huge shock. Science and space journalist Richard Hollingham, who you may recognise from presenting the Space Boffins podcast too. But that wasn't the only thing that was so shocking to the US. The first attempt by the United States to get a satellite off the ground uh, became known as uh, Flopnik, among other things. It, it exploded on the, the launch pad and kind of rolled away beeping. It's quite comical to watch, but it was a huge shock to the US at the time. And they finally managed to get a very small satellite off the pad later that year. So in some ways, this was sort of muscle flexing. It's totally about muscle flexing. In the US, they called it the missile gap. So really great fear. I mean, you have to imagine that time, the Cold War, fear on on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And so, yeah, it was just all driven by by politics, really. So Sputnik was first then, but the US launched their equivalent a month later, almost like a bit of a tit-for-tat in some ways. Yes, the Americans finally managed to get a, a satellite in orbit, much smaller satellite, later in 1957. But then the Soviet Union still managed all the firsts. So the first man in orbit, Yuri Gagarin, in April 1961. The first woman in orbit, June 1963. Now, the US didn't manage to get the first man in space until the 5th of May, 61. That was Alan Shepard, but that was just a suborbital flight. So it was really sticking him in this tiny Mercury capsule on top of a launcher going up and then straight back down again. They didn't have the power to get into orbit. So if you look certainly the early 1960s, where you had the flight of Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space in June 63, you had the first three-man capsule in 1964, the first spacewalk in March 1965, in February 1966, the first soft landing on the moon with a robotic spacecraft. They were all firsts by the Soviet Union. So undoubtedly, The appearance, certainly externally, was that in the early 1960s, the Soviet Union was leading the way. Mm, And I suppose that was really frightening for the Americans. It was terrifying for the Americans. And you have to remember, at the time, no one knew any of this stuff. So no one in America quite knew exactly what the Soviet Union was doing. They had their U-2 spy planes so they could see the, uh, uh, the launch sites, they could guess what was going on. They had a pretty good idea, but they didn't really know what was on the the minds of the the Soviets. The Soviets had a much better idea about what the US was doing because almost everything in the US program was open and public. I think the most interesting point in the space race is around the mid-1960s, where 
to all intents and purposes, it appears as if the Soviet Union is ahead. And yes, they are. They've done all, all the firsts. But that period, the Americans developed the Gemini spacecraft. So over just about 18 months between March 1965 and November 1966, they launched a series of missions where they managed their first spacewalk with Ed White. They managed to rendezvous two spacecraft in orbit. They managed to dock spacecraft in orbit. They managed to spend 14 days in orbit in this tiny cramped spacecraft around the size of the the front of a, a Volkswagen. But they managed to do all these things very quickly in 18 months. And it's around that period where you see the United States starting to edge ahead. Was it the moon landing that won the race? I mean, or was there more to it than that? Essentially, the Soviet Union, we know this now, lost the race in about 1966-67 when their N1 rocket, their giant rocket, their equivalent of the Saturn V rocket that took men to the moon, it couldn't get off the launch pad. It exploded on the launch pad. It, it just did not work. And at that point, effectively, the race was lost. 1968 onwards, the US had won. And, you know, there was no way the Soviet Union was going to get to the moon. Although the Soviets did carry on their moon landing program, at least in theory, into the 1970s. But they were never going to get a, a person on, on, the, uh, on the lunar surface. And what were the implications of all this, all this racing and, uh, I suppose, ultimately the Americans winning the race? The biggest implication, I think, of the moon race was this massive advance in technology. It was actually, in retrospect, such an amazing period, such an incredible period. All the the computers at Mission Control to enable these missions to happen, the development of rocket engines, the development of learning how to, to live in space. I mean, it's just incredible how much happened and how quickly it happened in that period of the space race. And then it kind of fizzled out rather quickly between Apollo 11 in 1969 and Apollo 17, the last Apollo mission, in 1972. And then, actually, the US and the Soviet Union ended up working together with the Apollo-Soyuz project of the mid-70s. And it turned out they actually had quite a lot in common, and they'd been developing these space programs in parallel and came up with different solutions to the same problems and now of course even though the the rhetoric against the the US and and Russia on the ground is uh, is anything but friendly up in space Russians and Americans work together every day on the international space station i mean the sadness is that it it lost momentum once the Americans had won and that's the trouble with developing those sorts of technologies in that political way in in this this way that was politically driven this this race but i think right now we're starting to pick up the momentum again but there's been such a lull in terms of human space exploration since the end of apollo this is naked astronomy with me greer jackson and today do we have a new space race on our hands lovely model behind you. Did you build this? Is it yours? No, I think I bought it from, from my son, from a 
shop and then when he grew out of it I thought it's quite a nice Saturn V rocket so we'll keep put it in my office. <laughs> That's Ian Crawford, Professor of Planetary Science at Birkbeck College, University of London. And other than that Saturn V rocket, Ian has a number of moon models too. I put it to him, is there another space race? So there is a lot of renewed interest in exploring the moon. I'm not sure that it's a race. Perhaps it is at some level, but it's certainly true that newly emerging space powers, if we may call them that, China and India, have quite ambitious proposals to send spacecraft to the moon. And in fact, both countries have already done so, but they've got they've got plans for more. And I think part of this is geopolitical in the sense that uh, they want to demonstrate they've got this capability of sending things to the moon so they can join the major space powers like America and Russia and, and Europe. Part of it is science-driven, though. There's a recognition, 40 years after Apollo, there's a recognition that still we've got a lot to learn about the moon. And then looking further ahead there's a realisation that the moon may have resources, economically, raw materials that are uh, valuable and that might therefore be economically worth exploiting. So we don't actually really know that the extent yet to which the moon might be economically valuable, but this is, of course, yet another reason for wanting to explore it further so that we can find out whether it's got anything useful or not. So I think all of these things together uh, really are driving the renewed interest in the moon. What do you mean when you say geopolitical drivers? In space exploration, there are two geopolitical drivers. One is kind of a less optimistic driver. It's a bit like the the Cold War, where countries are trying to compete or at least um, demonstrate they've got capabilities to try and aggrandise themselves on the world stage. But there is a more positive geopolitical driver, and that's the, the collaborative aspect that there's a realisation that space exploration is quite expensive to do. Individual countries probably can't do all they want to do on their own. And this provides a stage, if you will, for nations to collaborate, which is beneficial because nations may be at each other's throats in different other areas of their relations. But if they've got a few areas where they can uh, collaborate and be seen to be collaborating this can help build bridges between nations and um, it's one that already exists of course i mean one of the reasons the international space station exists was a recognition certainly in the u.s congress that by having russia on board and other countries on board it could help build uh, bridges in the wake of the, in the cold war so where are we up to today? Because I often think about it. Is it the Jade Rabbit? Is the Chinese um, mm. probe, isn't it? And then I think about the Russians talking about how they want to build a space taxi from the International Space Station over down to the moon. So, mm. so where are we at and who's doing what? So China is, is quite active. I mean, China did have their Chang'e 3 lander on the moon and that was a tremendous achievement. But yes, they have plans for several more and they're, they're slowly but surely progressing that. The Russians also have proposals to send spacecraft to the moon in the next I don't know, five, five, five or ten years, and so do well, and, and so do it. So does India. In a sense, so does everybody. But what's not quite clear is how realistic they all are. I mean, some of this is some of this is a quite a lot of talk. Some things, some areas, we can actually see stuff happening. Stuff is actually happening, in China. And so it's it's a bit it's a bit difficult to know. I mean, I am familiar with several Russian proposals that would have unmanned spacecraft land on the on the moon, probably around the south pole of the moon, which is an area of interest to lots of people at the moment. 
So why is there this interest in the South Pole? Is there something there? Yes, and no spacecraft has ever visited the poles of the Moon, north or south. And evidence has been growing over the last uh, well, 10 or 15 years that water ice is probably collecting in the bottom of these craters. If this is true, and this will be a very useful resource, because if we want to explore the Moon further or explore elsewhere in the solar system, then water is very useful material because you need it for life support, to drink and everything, but of course you can break it up into oxygen and hydrogen so you can breathe the oxygen or you can combine the oxygen with the hydrogen as a rocket fuel. It's got multiple applications in space exploration, but it's very heavy. I mean, a cubic metre of water weighs a tonne, of course, and if you've got to keep lifting water off the surface of the Earth in ginormous rockets to use in space, this will make the cost of space exploration much higher than it would be if you had a local source of water. So, yeah, a lot of the interest in exploring the lunar poles is to assess whether this water is really there, and if so, how much is there. And is there anything else on the Moon that people talk about perhaps exploiting and using as a resource to help us explore, say, Mars and the rest of the solar system? There are possible... I mean, certainly the Moon has other things. It has metals, aluminium, titanium, it has silicon that you might use for solar cells. You know, it's all exploiting these, these materials um, and manufacturing useful things out of them on the Moon is obviously quite a long way ahead. But nevertheless, the Moon does have these materials. Something that people talk about on the Moon as a as an economically useful resource is this helium-3 story. And there is an argument that helium-3 could be used for nuclear fusion power stations on the Earth to provide uh, future electricity. Now... I'm not actually. I'm not, not not myself an advocate of this for reasons I can explain if you if you want me to. I mean, helium three is present on the moon. It comes to the moon in the solar wind and it is implanted into the lunar soil. But no one has yet demonstrated that helium three is a viable fuel for nuclear fusion reactions. So we don't actually know we could use it. And even if we could use it, actually. There's not all that much there anyway. Uh, and so to get enough to provide electricity for the Earth, you'd be having you'd be an enormous operation, strip mining hundreds or thousands of square kilometres of the lunar surface every year. And so probably there's an easier way to solve the Earth's long-term energy requirements than mining lunar helium-3. Yeah, I, I imagine so. And I, and this this mining problem, I guess, is because it all streams the surface and it's not concentrated in areas like we might think of mining metal ores and things on, on Earth. But would it then be a good way to perhaps explore the rest of our solar system rather than dragging it back down to Earth and using it as a fuel? Nuclear-powered spacecraft, yes, this would be very enabling, right? If you had a spacecraft that took only three weeks to get to Mars instead of eight months, which is what currently is taken, or could get you to the moons of Jupiter in a in a few weeks or months instead of years. Obviously, this would greatly open up the solar system and this would require nuclear-powered rockets of some kind. Now, we, we haven't, we're certainly not in a position to build one yet. I mean, I suppose it is true that in the quite distant future, if you were able to build a nuclear fusion-powered rocket, this would be a very enabling thing. And if lunar helium-3 would be a potential fuel for such a thing, then yes, in that quite exciting but quite niche market, providing fuel for nuclear rockets to explore the solar system 
or, or maybe even beyond. So, so it's in the context of trying to provide all of Earth's energy needs from lunar helium-3 that it becomes implausible. The amount you'd need to power a rocket would be much less, and so then, it, yes, it could become attractive in that context. So paint me a picture of what's going to be happening in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years even. Are we going to be seeing more and more probes? Are we going to be seeing humans returning to the moon perhaps 50, 60, 70, 80 years after the Apollo landings? Well, I certainly, I certainly hope so. So the way I see it panning out, and the good news is, from, from my point of view, the good news is this is what's essentially envisaged in the Global Exploration Roadmap, which means this is the way the agencies are, space agencies are thinking, is to, after the ISS, return humans to the moon, use uh, a human presence on the moon to, of course, learn a lot about the moon, its geology and everything, a lot of science to do, but also develop the capability, the human spaceflight capability, that once we're confident that we know how to explore space with humans using the moon as a test bed, then to use that as a stepping stone, sort of literally and figuratively, a stepping stone that would take us to Mars and elsewhere. So I hope that's the way space exploration pans out in the 21st century. Would you volunteer yourself to go? So, so I would have done. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so I might still, but I'm afraid 2030, I'll probably be well past it, uh, unfortunately. I mean, I think in a sense there's been a, a, several lost generations post-Apollo, right? I mean, there are people of a certain age, like me, who when they were sort of nine or ten watching Apollo happen thought this was the future, right? And yet it didn't actually happen for us. But I hope it can happen for the younger generation. I mean, so people like Tim Peake, right, inspired a lot of a lot of people. So what's Tim Peake's next mission going to be? I mean, maybe maybe it won't quite happen soon enough for him to, to have a chance at going to the moon. But some of the young people that he's inspired, I think this is what we have to hope, that the, the space programme ramps up to a level that many of the people who are school-aged now, who people like Tim Peake have inspired, can realistically hope that, yeah, they too might have a small but finite chance of going to the moon or to Mars. I find it a little sad to think that a generation grew up believing that Apollo was the future, we were going to the moon, and then, after the US won the race, kaput. Moon exploration was no more. But perhaps Ian is right. Maybe Tim Peake will inspire a new generation of scientists and perhaps those scientists will drive the era of Luna. Yeah, it was quite cool to see someone more recently going into space for, I think it was about six months, I think, to go to the International Space Station for that long. It's been quite cool. Would would you volunteer to go up in space? Probably, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) probably. It scares me. Yeah, it would probably be quite scary, but also quite cool with the anti-gravity, because there would be no gravity and you could just float around. It would be awkward. (laughs) This is a student from the Perth School in Cambridge. After Ian's comment, I thought it would be interesting to see if Tim Peake's mission had inspired youngsters to get to the lunar surface. These pupils are a part of Ecology Club, and they got some seeds that were sent up into space with Tim Peake. They were then returned from space and the students grew them to see how microgravity and radiation might have affected them. Teacher Alison Kemp. I'm a biology and a little bit of chemistry teacher here at the Perth. Uh, I've been here since September, and prior to that I was a veterinary surgeon. 
Oh, wow, quite, quite a jump then. Uh, yes, but a very good one. Um, so it's been an absolutely fantastic experience working with uh, all the young people here. Um, they have so many questions, uh, and I'm, I'm constantly being challenged and thinking about new areas of science that I, I maybe wasn't before. Like rocket seeds in space? Like rocket seeds in space, exactly. That's not something I'd uh, I, I spent a long time thinking about. But when I saw the experiment was available, I, we had to do it. Um, it's just such a fantastic opportunity to get the children involved uh, with some, some real-life science, uh, something that will matter, um, and something that hopefully captured their imaginations a, a little bit and made them think. So basically, we got... Two packets of seeds. One red and one blue. One had been into space with Tim Peake and one was just a normal packet of seeds. What we did, we planted both and we saw if there were any differences between the way they grew. Uh, We measured the percentage of the seeds which germinated and how many leaves they had and the height of them. The trays were randomised, so... Uh, we put sort of groups of uh, groups of seeds together. We mixed up the red and the blue. Um, they all had the same lighting conditions. They all had the same water uh, availability as well, uh, just to try and make it as, as, as a fair a test as we possibly could do. Uh, and what we did is we we then just really monitored the seeds. So we watched uh, how long it took them to germinate. We then uh, counted leaves on them. We looked at the height of the seeds measured uh, from the soil all the way right up to the top of the shoot. Um, and really just recorded what was happening and, and tried to spot any differences between the two packets as we as we went along. We didn't think there'd be much of a difference, mainly because they're not really doing anything in space. They're just going up into space. Even with microgravity and radiation and all those sorts of things? Well, they're still all packaged up and everything, so it shouldn't make that much of a difference. I'm looking at the results on the wall, and actually... They're they're pretty close in terms of percentages. They are very, very similar. Um, We found there was a slight difference between our our, our red and our blue seeds, but not really hugely significant. Our our red seeds tended to get a bit bigger. Their stalks were a bit thinner, um, and they tended to to, to want to grow upwards towards the sky, so I don't know whether that means anything. Um, The blue seeds, on the other hand, uh, generally stayed a little bit smaller, but they were much more even. And the blue seeds... Not many of them, or not as many of them, made it uh, until the final day of the experiment. So we did lose some of the blue seeds. So what have you done with these results here? Um, we've put them into uh, the RHS's uh, database, so they will be combined with uh, results from all the other schools that have participated in the experiment. Obviously, there are some uh, some employed scientists doing this experiment as well. We're not just leaving it uh, to schools around the country. But all the results are going to be combined, so uh, they will obviously then be analysed, and hopefully we should uh, end up with some results over the, the, the next few months. We're hoping to find out which packet of seeds uh, went into space this week. Um, so we're all waiting desperately for the email to come through uh, to see whether uh, our, our predictions were, were, were right. Um, I've been just hitting refresh on my email <laughs> constantly. <laughs> I have been doing that quite a lot of times this week. Um, as soon as Tim Peake came back down, I've been, I've been checking emails daily just to make sure that uh, I've not missed anything. But uh, as, yet, as yet, I'm still waiting to, waiting to see the result. Um, I think that I would definitely get a career in science after this because I feel like I've got more of an insight into what actually happens in science and I really enjoyed it. So. 
Um, maybe. I, I don't really know, but... Yeah, I think it has because I got a bit more interested in what's actually happening and what ha- yeah, what had basically what happened there and I think the experiment has just been a, a fantastic way of engaging the children with with true science. Ultimately in school we do an awful lot of practical experiments. We're very very lucky here. Um but a lot of them, we as teachers know what the result's going to be. Um, we can obviously fiddle around with it to, to try and change things if we need to. This was something completely new. That was actually really nice for me to be working sort of almost at the same level as the students. Uh, you know, we're, we're all experimenting together. It's also a really got a good opportunity to um, sort of talk about how we design experiments with them. Um, it really highlights why we have to uh, rant, do things like randomization. Um, why we have to be very accurate with the measurements that we take because obviously all these results are, are going to mean something and, and potentially um, could uh, you know, have an impact on, on whether we choose to grow maybe rockets in space or whether we choose to grow other plants uh, you know, if we ever eventually manage to settle on, on other planets. I think it's always nice to be involved in a big group, uh, big group study in it like this. You get to add to the knowledge like to the community's knowledge like you said um i'm not quite sure how (laughs) rockets uh growing rocket seeds would help us live on the moon but (laughs) oh we need food (laughs) true true um but um yeah i I think it's always a, a, a great thing to do with many subjects, the, the way to best engage young people is to get them involved, get them seeing what, uh, you know, what jobs in that field uh, actually do. I don't think there's a be- any better way uh, of, of in- encouraging children into science than actually getting their hands dirty and getting involved. Well, I think this might contribute through to, for example, the Mars One mission, because what we're trying to do here is a one-way one-way trip to Mars, and then we're going to set up a greenhouse there, which can be built in six months. And then we're trying to basically populate Mars, if that's if you can say that. And I think this might help because now we're investigating how seeds would behave in, in, in space and whether we could actually grow seeds there and how this would affect it or whether, we, whether they're edible after we've grown them there as well. So I think that's quite interesting and that's going to expand our knowledge yeah it would be really cool uh, because you would basically be starting a new world uh, and you using this experiment and this study um, it, you can find ways of growing food and then if the world gets too populated you can move there Some food for thought, perhaps, from the Perth School's Ecology Club and their teacher, Alison Kemp. Thank you. And also to Space Boffins, Richard Holliam and planetary scientist, Ian Crawford. The music you heard today was from Duke Deck, create your own at dukedeck.com. And the theme tune was composed by Anthony Baggett. If you want to get in touch, please do find me on Twitter at Greya Jackson, uh, G-R-A-I-H-A-G-H, or you can just hashtag Naked Astronomy. I always like a bit of chat. And finally, I want to share with you my favourite moon fact. So the moon rotates at 10 miles per hour, which I thought seemed really fast until I looked up how fast the Earth rotates. Any guesses? Times it by 100, a 1,000 miles per hour. Pretty awesome. That just about wraps everything up. I'll see you next month on Naked Astronomy.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.